Good morning. Welcome to Prairie View Christian Church, and thanks again for joining us here this morning. Well, as we close our sermon series in First and Second Thessalonians, we've covered quite a bit of ground so far. The Apostle Paul thanks God for this young, small, suffering, but faithful church. Paul also encourages these Christians to keep moving forward in their obedience, their growth, and their sanctification. And he corrects them in a few areas where they were falling short. That includes sexual morality, as well as their understanding of death, resurrection, and Jesus' future return. Now that final point, Christ's return, came up in 1 Thessalonians and came up again last week. Paul had to reassure these shaken and alarmed believers that, contrary to what some false teachers had told them, Christ had not actually returned yet. He makes it clear that they will know when it happens. And even though things may have looked bad for them then, and will get even worse in the future in some ways, the sure promise of Christ's return gives them reason to be joyful, prayerful, and thankful, no matter what's going on around them. And the same is true for us. So as we pick up today in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, it's been clearly established that Jesus hasn't returned yet. It's also been firmly established that we don't know when Jesus will return. Paul compared Christ's coming to a thief in the night. You won't expect it. Jesus himself stated that it is not for us to know the times or the dates when he will come. But if both of these ideas are true, that Christ hasn't come yet, and we don't know when he will come, then we can't help but ask, well, what should we do while we wait? Paul gives us two good answers to that question in the verses we read this morning. So open up to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Feel free to use one of our Bibles if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home if you don't have one. But before we read, let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together to worship you. Thank you that, as mentioned a moment ago in our communion meditation, that no matter how we're coming into the building this morning, no matter what's happened in our lives, in our work, in our schools, in our homes over the past week, it doesn't change the fact that Christ died for our sins, Christ rose, Christ ascended, and Christ will return. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us be faithful through the ups and downs and the ebbs and flows of everyday life, knowing that these truths don't change and that your promises will be fulfilled. Uh, you have a perfect track record of doing what you say you will do, of being faithful to your people, and that's not going to change anytime soon. So I pray that you would keep us afloat in the midst of trials, in the midst of hardships. Keep us humble in times of success and joy. Help us remember our dependence upon you. And as we do, week in and week out, help us continually come back to the cross knowing that 
Your cross is where our sins are forgiven. Your cross reminds us of who we are, of who you are. And your cross reminds us of what is to come, and that's resurrection. So, Lord, I pray that we would continually come back to you at the cross and find hope, find purpose, find joy, and find you over and over again being faithful as you always have been and always will be. Lord, thank you for your word this morning that we get to read. I pray that you would teach us and form us and shape us by your word so that we can glorify you and be the people you've declared us to be, be the people you call us to be, be saints. Lord, again, thank you for this time we have together. Thank you for these saints in this place. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Starting in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1. Paul writes, Finally, brothers, pray for us, that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored, as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. So what should we do while we wait for Jesus to return? First, Paul says... We should pray. Okay. Pray for what? He gives us the answer to that too. Verse 1, we pray for the spread of the gospel. Paul uses the imagery of running a race, praying that the gospel might speed ahead. There are other ideologies, worldviews, belief systems, whatever you want to call them, That compete for our attention, our loyalty, and our faith. We pray that the gospel might beat them out. That more people would come to know the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done in his person and work on the cross. Next, Paul tells the Thessalonians to pray for their deliverance from wicked and evil men. In verse 2. That phrase, wicked and evil men, is likely a reference to false teachers. We talked about them some last week. But we know there are opponents of the gospel and opponents of God's people all over the place in many different forms. So Paul prays and tells these believers to pray that these opponents might not hinder their mission. And then Paul tells these Christians to pray for their sanctification in verses 3 through 5. We've talked quite a bit about sanctification the past few weeks, especially in the second half of 1 Thessalonians. We pray that God would establish us and protect us from Satan. We pray that we would continue growing in faith, growing in obedience. And we pray that our hearts would be directed to love God. And that we might endure to the end. We pray that we might be sanctified. But before we move ahead in our passage, let's get more specific about how we pray for these things. Practically speaking, how do we, in this time, in this place, pray that the gospel might continue spreading? 
Well, we could commit to pray for missionaries, dedicating their lives to sharing the gospel with unbelievers. We support a number of them at this church. Some are overseas and some elsewhere. I'd encourage you to make a point to stay informed about who they are, where they are, what they're doing, and then regularly pray for them. I'd also suggest praying for the efforts of local churches, including, obviously, but not limited to, this local church. Pray that churches like ours would be thoughtful about how to make the gospel known in our community. And that we would be hospitable when people from our community come here. We can also pray that those who do not believe would have open hearts and open minds to the gospel. We can lead a horse to water, but we can't make it drink. So pray that God's spirit and God's word would break down barriers of unbelief. And lastly, this one might be the most challenging of all. Pray that you, yes, you, would have the courage to spread the gospel yourself. To take part in that race that Paul is talking about. Be bold. Be open about your faith and the places that God puts you and with the people God puts in your path. So pray that the gospel would spread. That it would run all over in this fallen world that so desperately needs it. But then practically speaking, how should we pray for deliverance from wicked and evil men? As Paul said in verse 2. We mentioned that this phrase is likely referring to false teachers in and around Thessalonica. But false teachers are still around today. And they're still attempting to lead believers like us astray, whether it's through theological error or moral compromise. We can pray for wisdom to recognize false teachers, boldness to confront them, and that those false teachers might repent of their error. On top of that, there are still faithless opponents of the gospel in our world trying to hinder our mission. There are people out there who aren't just indifferent or unconvinced about Christ, but those who are actively working against the gospel. We can pray for deliverance from them. And while we may not see the worst of it here, persecution of Christians still happens in many parts of our world. We can pray that the gospel of God would overcome these obstacles. We can pray that the believers who suffer at their hands might find relief. And if God does not grant them relief, pray that they might have courage and endurance to keep believing the gospel. Keep proclaiming the gospel. Keep living faithfully to the gospel, even through suffering. And then practically speaking, how should we pray for our sanctification? I'm convinced that God has given us three primary resources for our growth and holiness. Pray that God's spirit would continue his work of changing us, shaping us, and forming us in the image of Christ. 
that he would continue helping us produce good fruit and prune away bad branches, both internally and externally. I'd encourage you to pray for a stronger desire to read God's word, to pray for a deeper, sounder understanding of it when you do. And then pray for the Christian community around you. That we as siblings in Christ would teach, serve, and encourage each other in our sanctification. We've been talking about small groups the past few weeks. That is the number one way to get Christian community in this church outside of Sunday mornings. And it's a huge part of our sanctification. You know, there are many things that we can do and should do as we wait for Christ to return. But one of the absolute best things we can do while we wait is to pray. Prayer is never a waste of time. So that's one thing we do while we wait. What's another? Look at verse 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So first, Paul tells us that we should pray as we wait for Christ to return. Second, he tells us to work until Christ returns. As we've seen throughout the course of this sermon series, the church in Thessalonica was wonderful in many ways, but it wasn't perfect. And one of the issues they apparently had was a number of believers who were able but unwilling to work. However, the word idle, I-D-L-E, that appears throughout this passage means more than just being lazy. These idle people weren't just sitting around doing nothing. They found plenty of ways to keep themselves busy, but they were busy with the wrong things. They were unruly, disorderly, as some older translations might put it. They were meddling in sins and distractions that raised questions about their faith and had the potential to harm the church's reputation. That's why Paul gives such tough love in verses 6, 10, and 14. 
He says, keep away from these idle people. Don't enable them. And if they still don't get it after those efforts, discipline them. Warn them in hopes that they might recognize and repent of their sin. Now, as a quick side note, because this is as good a place as any to mention it. Don't read these words, especially verse 10, and picture Paul as some cruel, heartless, oil tycoon capitalist lecturing people about work ethic while snickering and twisting his handlebar mustache. It's not what's happening. This verse is not an example of Paul being cold towards the poor, the disabled, or the elderly. This is Paul calling out the idle, the lazy, the unruly, the disorderly people in this church who could very well work to support themselves and others, but simply chose not to. Paul cared for the poor. He cared for widows. He cared for orphans. He cared for the sick. Those who legitimately could not work through no fault of their own. In 2 Corinthians 8, we see Paul organizing a collection for poor believers in Jerusalem. 2 Thessalonians 3.10 is not Paul being a jerk to the poor. In fact, Paul instructs believers to be generous and compassionate to those people. And the way that you can be generous and compassionate to those people is if those who can work, do work. As a way of loving those who can't. Now we spoke very practically about prayer. So let's do the same thing with work. First, biblically speaking, work is a good thing. Though it is a fallen thing. Before sin ever entered the world, Adam and Eve had honest, dignifying, God-honoring work to do in tending the Garden of Eden. It's only after sin enters the picture that their relationship with work changes. Work becomes more difficult and less productive. It may even be said that Adam and Eve, and people like us who follow in their footsteps, were created to work. That said, of course, we too live in a fallen world, which means that we have a complicated relationship with work as well. It doesn't always feel like our work is very meaningful, does it? And if we know what's good for us, we'll follow God's commands to rest. But work, whether it's a nine to five job, Maintaining a home, raising children, or caring for aging parents is not an inherently bad thing. One theologian writes that daily work, so far from being a hindrance to Christian living, is a necessary ingredient to it. So then if work can be a good thing, how should we work? We work for God's glory. In Ephesians 6 and Colossians 3, Paul instructs Christian slaves to work with sincere hearts, to obey their masters as if they were obeying Jesus himself. 
He tells them to work heartily. as for the Lord and not for men. This is another one of those passages that people might twist to paint the Apostle Paul in a less than favorable light. But Paul is not endorsing or speaking lightly about the evils of slavery in those verses. Paul is telling the lowest of the low on the socioeconomic food chain that their work matters when it's done for God's glory. In the same way, our work, even the frustrating, the exhausting, the demeaning parts of it, can be valuable when it's done in a way that glorifies God. When it's done with honesty and integrity. When it leaves a good impression of the church on the unbelievers around us. We work for God's glory. And God can be glorified through our work. But then why should we work? Other than God's glory. Most obviously in 2 Thessalonians, verse 10, so we can eat. We work to provide for ourselves, for our families, for our siblings in Christ who can't provide for themselves. But we also work for the sake of the church's reputation among outsiders. We do it to set a good example for our fellow Christians. And we even do it to avoid sin that might spread among the church. That idleness we talked about a few moments ago. As people older and wiser than me have sometimes said, a bored person is a dangerous person. Just because Christ is coming doesn't mean we grow lazy, complacent, idle, or meddlesome. We have work to do until he comes. So again, Jesus hasn't returned yet, and we don't know when he will return. So what do we do while we wait? Paul tells us two things. We pray and we work. The phrase pray and work has been used by many believers for centuries, originating with Benedictine monks. I was just getting made fun of earlier this week for my fascination with Benedictine monks, but they have some good things to offer us. They use this phrase, pray and work. It's often in Latin. It rolls off the tongue. Ora et labora. Ora et labora. Until Christ comes, we pray and we work. We pray that the gospel might spread. That it would overcome obstacles and that we might be sanctified. And we work as God designed us to do. For our good, for his glory, and for the sake of the church's reputation in a fallen world. We pray and we work until Christ comes. Now there's one more thing to mention before we close and it's this. What we believe shapes what we do. Our theology shapes our practice. Our doctrine shapes our lives. Or at least it should. 
For example, if we believe that God is a rigid taskmaster and not a loving father, we'll likely be harsh and legalistic people ourselves. If we believe that God is a loving father, but not also a righteous judge, we'll likely be soft on sin. If we believe that health, wealth, and prosperity are always necessarily signs of God's blessing, and that suffering is always necessarily a sign of God's disapproval, then we'll likely assume that worldly success means we're doing something right, and hardship means we're doing something wrong. Spoiler alert. The Bible's picture of that is not quite that simple. And if we're mistaken in our beliefs about Christ's return, as the Thessalonians apparently were, we may fall into sins similar to theirs. We may grieve without hope, as we saw in Paul's first letter. We may be unnecessarily shaken and alarmed by false claims about Jesus, as we saw last week. Or we may throw up our hands and assume that since Jesus is coming, I guess we don't need to work anymore. That's what we're seeing today. William Miller wrongly predicted that Christ would return on October 22nd, 1844. That event went down in history as the Great Disappointment. To a lesser degree, Jerry Falwell did something similar around Y2K. Harold Camping wrongly said that Christ would return on May 21st, 2011. Needless to say, people were a bit annoyed after they quit their jobs, sold their homes, and invested everything they had into camping's project. I bring these examples up to show that poor theology changes people's lives in real and powerful ways. This isn't just theoretical stuff for scholars to debate or write books about. It matters to every Christian. And that's why we talk about it here. What we believe shapes what we do. Our theology shapes our practice. Our doctrine shapes our lives. Or at least it should. So maybe we should strive to have good beliefs, sound theology, right doctrine. So if we believe that Christ really is coming, but we don't know when it will be, that should affect our everyday lives. And what should we do while we wait? Ora et labora. We pray And we work. In verse 16, Paul says, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. That's an odd little addition, but if you think back to what we talked about last week, How false teachers may have been forging letters in Paul's name, you can see why he might include that. Verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. 
May the God of peace give us peace. May the Lord be with us. May his grace be with us as we wait for Christ to come. And may we pray and work until he arrives. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, the lessons you teach us from every part of your word, the lessons that you've taught us from these parts of your word the past eight weeks. I pray that we would take them and apply them. They wouldn't just be things we hold in our heads, information that we find interesting or fascinating, but rather we would allow these teachings, these doctrines to affect our lives, to affect our practice in good ways that glorify you. And Lord, as we look back to Christ's cross and look back to Christ's resurrection and look back to Christ's ascension, we also look ahead to Christ's return. And while we wait for that day to come, help us be faithful in prayer. There are endless things to pray about. And Lord, I pray that we would take full advantage of the privilege we have of coming into your presence with confidence, pouring out our hearts to you, pouring out needs, concerns to you, fears, doubts, struggles. I pray that we would approach you in confidence and prayer, knowing that you know what we need before we ask. So, Lord, for our sake, help us pray. Help us speak to you as you have so generously spoken to us in your word. And, Lord, help us work. There's a lot to do between now and Christ's return. And while we don't know when you will come, Lord, I pray that we would be faithful until you do. That we would do the things you call us to do. Be the people you call us to be. Thank you that the work that you've given us is meaningful and is valuable and can bring you glory, even when it frustrates us in a fallen world. And so, Lord, help us work in ways that glorify you. Help us work towards and for things that are worthy of you. Lord, help us pray and work until you come. And as Paul said in 1 Thessalonians, help us walk as children of the day, as children of light, until you come. Help us be faithful, Lord. Thank you that you are faithful to us. We love you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.